Chapter 9. Lviv. A Living Room in Europe. Arriving in Lviv, in western Ukraine, feels like stepping into a well-furnished living room in a wealthy aunt's townhouse. Standing proud in the centre is the Opera House, an oversized gatto that marks the entrance of a long plaza framed by the parallel highways of Svobody Liberty Avenue. Here stands a classical plinth statue of the Polish national poet Adam Mickiewicz, and a short walk away, the larger, modern Shevchenko monument. East of this scene is the city's older parts, where the nightlife buzzes around statues and memorials, with Renok Market Square, the uncontested focal point. It is easy to understand why the city is called Eastern Europe's Paris, enjoyable at a third of the price. Its central European character and architectural abundance give Lviv a kind of charming showiness. I've arranged a meeting with Tamara Zlobina, Doctor of Philosophy, Art Critic and Editor of Equality website Gender in Detail and ask her to describe the difference between Kiev and her home city. People in Lviv are more conservative, both on the inside and the outside. Here, working-class men can also wear suit trousers and fancy shoes, and women like to walk around in skirts and heels. Very bourgeois. This also applies to the attitude, especially in academia, and the spread of ideas about emancipation. Kiev somehow feels more modern, freer of mind and lifeways. I think it has a lot to do with the Greek Catholic dominance in Lviv, Yet there's also a small-scale entrepreneurial culture that's stronger than in other parts of the country, a more palpable, Europeanish civil society, says Tamara Zlobina. Lviv and the surrounding Galicia are Ukraine's western borderland and its gateway to Europe, if you will. German author Lutz Klevermann has described the city as the forgotten heart of Europe that history has consigned to the continent's mental margins. The city, which today boasts a population of 720,000, took form during the various Polish, Polish-Lithuanian and Habsburg periods of rule. From the mid-14th century, once the Mongols had withdrawn, the Ruthenian kingdom was swallowed up by Poland. Then, for almost 150 years from the 1770s to the end of the First World War, Lviv was part of the Habsburg Empire. It was then Polish again until 1939, when the region was incorporated into the Soviet Union. This means that Lviv was Soviet for only just over half a century, which explains why it has retained a character of pomp, homeliness and small-scale neatness in equal measure. At the same time, Tamara Zlobina says that the civil, slightly petty bourgeois Lviv, like the rest of Ukraine, still lives under the image of the strong leader and of uniform power, with a capital P, visibly cast as one piece. This, she thinks, is also evident in the elections. The percentage of people who went out to vote in the 2019 presidential election eclipsed that of the parliamentary election a few months previously. The president is seen as something of a czar, the one we hope will fix everything for us. The value of the parliament is vaguer. Then there is this notion of monolithic power, 
I attended a meeting in 2014 for NGO activists in Berlin where Ukrainians asked about the Germans' take on local power. The Germans didn't understand the question. What power holders were being referred to? Local politicians, director generals or big corporations? We're not used to these things being different. In Ukraine, local politicians aren't independent and are controlled by central politicians or tied up with oligarchs. Such structures, of course, are not interested in cooperating with NGO activists. But Tamara Zlobina still thinks that the situation has gradually improved. At the turn of the millennium, during the Kuchma era, the president would issue writing manuals for the media. Yanukovych tried to do the same but was forced to back down. Today, it's not even on the cards, she says. What do the people of Lviv think about the legacy left on the city by great powers from different points of the compass? She ponders the question before answering. People's view of Poland is generally negative. This is because of Poland's nationalist stance during the World Wars, when Ukrainians were persecuted and imprisoned. Poland has always coveted Galicia. The view of Austria-Hungary is different, more nostalgic, since their rule was more liberal, or perhaps I should say multicultural and permissive. And then there's the Soviet Union. Well... It has left much damage and tragedy in its wake, and functionally, no one thinks highly of it. And we do what we can to cast off the burdensome legacy of the communist era. On my first day in the city, I visit the Lubomirsky Palace on Renok Square. Built in 1760 for the Polish prince Stanislaw Lubomirsky, it was taken over by the local Austrian governor as his residence already in 1771. As I enter the show halls on the second floor, I'm intercepted by a female museum warder who delivers a harangue I don't understand. She then points to a kind of shoe cover, but as I try to wrap them over my boat shoes, she starts to protest. Nyemaya, Nyezovni, not outside the shoes. It's then I realise that they are a kind of slipper. The incident is telling in all its triviality. The palace is mainly visited by foreign tourists in their daily hundreds, perhaps thousands. And yet the warders utter not a single word of German or English. How hard can it be to learn the words shoe and sock in English? With three additional words, no, only, and please, they could achieve eight hours of friction-free communication with the torrent of tourists. Yep, that's the communist legacy for you says Tamara's Lobina when I tell her the story. Visitors are seen as strangers, not as customers. Staff manage and defend their territory by upholding rules. Some things are in the bones, but the problem is not unknown, and there are now programmes in place to ensure that Lviv's service culture improves. However, Tamara's Lobina recognises another side to the Soviet legacy. Paradoxically, there are also Soviet features that are distinctly modern and of our time, like that the class differences aren't so set in stone here. We have different classes, of course, but they're not built on inherited wealth, and there's a kind of basic equality, mobility and openness between the different social strata. The part played by Galicia itself in Ukraine is slightly paradoxical. 
it being a part of the country with genuine cultural traditions as well as in 1800's oil boom. That said, the area remained economically undeveloped. Galicia's oil fields were found at the end of the 1800s, but despite the fact that over 50 refineries were active here in the early 20th century, industrialization lagged behind the country's eastern regions. Lviv's population multiplied from 50,000 to 200,000 between 1870 and 1910, but in the coal and steel towns of eastern Ukraine, demographic growth could be upwards of 1,000%. Galicia's oil deposits also proved rather paltry, and with the chaos of the First World War, the sector shrank. Industry was transferred to the rapidly growing east, where prestige investments were being made in universities, taking the future with it. The country's lowest average pay is actually found in Ternopil, a little to the east of Lviv, while the highest is found in Kiev and some cities in eastern Ukraine. I spend a few evenings strolling around Lviv, ticking off sites large and small. An otherwise respectable bookshop carries a bounteous display of sadomasochism books, the reason being that Lviv was the birthplace of author Leopold Ritter von Zakamasoch, a man who, admittedly involuntarily, lent his name to this particular sexual preference. I pass a restaurant on the square where a small group of curious people stand outside peering in. Inside, prospective diners have themselves whipped by the staff to the delight of other guests. As for the literary gentleman Zaka Masoch, he had himself tortured in Austria, where he eventually settled. On one summer evening, Lviv is a carnival of fun and games. Ladies in provocative clothing beckon passers-by into strip clubs on Renook Square. Airgun firing ranges offer effigies of Putin to snipe at. The streets resound with the music of the busker's guitar and fiddles. And yes, you can even take a crash course in twerking. Eastern European twerking, a more apt symbol of the dominance of the global village, would be harder to find. This city's spirit of impatient modernity, appealing yet a little insipid, thins out with age and distance from the thrum of the city, but in Lviv, the reference points are global. The music, the celebrities, the dances, the digital platforms, the restaurant trends, the t-shirt motifs, and the sports. The urban, sparkling Lviv has existed for a long time closer to dance steps than the steps. When I sit down at a restaurant table and order a beer, the waiter asks me where I come from. Sweden? That is a nice country. You do not have our problems. Well, yes and no, I reply. We're also in a state of crisis, a crisis of identity. There's a lot of discontent around. I refrain from explaining that despite Sweden's healthy economy, working infrastructure and solid democratic institutions, Populism and doubt about where the country is headed have increased. In many ways, polarization feels greater in Sweden than it does in a Ukraine that, despite all the misery, discontent, low income, nebulous national identity, and general wheezing, nevertheless seems to unite around a desire for greater democracy, the rule of law, and reform. But life is good in Sweden, the waiter insists. You are a rich country, that is good. Yes, but having wealth can be less pleasurable than striving for it. Anyway, 
I hope you are rich, he smiles. Well, doing my best, old chap, I reply and raise my glass with a suave smile. A gesture of self-assured status rooted in Western prominence. It feels good, the facts notwithstanding. I take pleasure where I can. And my smug grin is not without justification. According to the 2019 World Happiness Report, the Nordic countries and a few other nations in Northwest Europe are the continent's happiest, taking into account social factors like health, corruption, and financial status. Finland ranks the highest, while Europe's unhappiest country is, yes, you've guessed it, Ukraine. But while the World Happiness Report notes that discontent, or the lack of happiness, seems high in Ukraine, which one might venture to suggest has something to do with the war, public faith in the future is even higher. In the 2019 Pew Research Center survey, Ukraine tops a dozen European countries when it comes to people's belief that their children will be better off financially than they are. And when the 2020 World Happiness Report was published, Ukraine had climbed 11 places from 134 to 123 out of a total of 154 countries. In 2013, however, before the outbreak of war, it was at 87. It is sometimes said that Ukraine has few national heroes. The point of the assertion is unclear. After all, a country can have as many heroes as it likes. Perhaps it is that Ukraine is such a young country that it has not had time to establish many key figures, or that it has a tendency to recycle, with disturbing frequency, a bunch of well-known characters. Statues abound of such heroes as Vladimir the Great, who Christianized the Kievan Rus in the 10th century, and Yaroslav the Wise, the last great Kievan Rus ruler. We also find Cossack leaders, Kimilnitsky and Mazepa, along with sundry cultural luminaries such as historian and statesman Mikhailo Ruszewski, the prolific turn-of-the-century author Ivan Franco, the female poet Lesya Ukrainka, and of course the pioneer of the Ukrainian language, Taras Shevchenko, who, since the 1990s, has also taken pride of place in central Lviv, and possibly Simon Petlura who led the independence campaign against the Germans and Bolsheviks after the First World War, but whose troops, in defiance of his orders, sullied their reputation by engaging in post-war pogroms. National heroes also include the military liquidators and firefighters from Chernobyl and soldiers who fell in the Second World War. On the side of the Allies, I should add. A sinusure of Lviv's local firmament is Danilo Helitsky, who ruled the Ruthenian kingdom of Galicia Volinia in the 13th century when the Mongols reigned over the steppes and advanced on Europe. King Danilo has become a symbol of Galicia's early history and military conquests against Poles and Hungarians and the creation of the kingdom that stretched north and east of Lviv. However, autonomy during the Halitskian 13th century was relative. Having been resisted by Kiev's leaders, the Mongols ravaged and burned the city, which remained an impoverished limbo for centuries. When the Mongols knocked on the gates of Lviv a few years later in 1246, Danilo Halitsky opted to compromise, to subjugate himself to the aggressors, and dutifully pay tax. 
The Mongols' golden army was conquering and wealth-generating, but not proselytizing, and local leaders were often free to practice their customs and worship their gods. Lviv was allowed to retain a kind of stability and internal autonomy. King Danilo, crowned in 1253, tried to forge alliances in Europe against the Mongols, but his efforts were largely in vain. The city was also named after Danilo's son Leo. Lviv means lion, which various tribes adapted over the ages to their own nomenclatural preferences. The first name was Lvihorod, Lion City. Then, in the 1340s, the Poles conquered the city and named it Lvov, spelt L-W-O-W, as it is still called in Poland. On the partition of Poland in 1772, the Habsburgs dubbed the capital of its northernmost province Lemberg. The Jews often said Lemberg or Lemberic, and the Russians have always stuck to Lvov, spelt L-V-O-V. A democratic country is usually defined by its ability to tolerate dissenting opinions. The fact that Ukraine is an ostentatious and young country also creates space for a variety of public narratives. Tolerance towards the dubious morals of its national heroes also seems much greater here than in the rest of Europe. If we step back for a moment and consider our continent, defined through 20th century experiences, What acts would disqualify a high-profile politician from being elevated to a hero in Europe? Well, leading an organisation that effected a ministerial assassination, proclaimed an ethnic cleansing project and massacred Jews and Poles would be a reasonable suggestion. In Ukraine, such a curriculum vitae would be no obstacle. Amongst Lviv's statues of national heroes is a large monument to a man who was heroified during the 2000s. Stepan Bandera, the Lviv-born-and-bred leader of the far-right organization of Ukrainian nationalists. The statue of Stepan Bandera, staring proudly into the distance, stands in front of a kind of rectangular, quadrupodic, triumphal arch on a street in Lviv that also bears his name. Bandera joined the OUN in 1929 at the age of 20, principally to engage in the struggle for independence against Poland and the USSR. Above all, it was the Poles for whom the Ukrainian nationalists had the evil eye. They were the inheritors of foreign supremacy, not the then more remote Russians. In the summer of 1943, the OUN-UPA, the Ukrainian insurgent army, participated in the mass killing of between 70,000 and 200,000 Poles in areas of western Ukraine and what is now southeastern Poland, in a campaign that the Polish government designated as a genocide in 2016 and that remains a hotbed of distrust between the countries to this day. The Germans advanced eastward in 1941 on the hunt for raw materials a manoeuvre that the OUN hoped would have Ukraine established as a friendly brotherland. However, the Nazis had nothing but contempt for the Ukrainians, and the Third Reich headquarters was rife with all manner of witticisms about how the Ukrainians were to be dealt with. All Ukrainian men over 15 should be executed and our SS studs sent in instead, quipped one Nazi leader. 
When the OUN had a Ukrainian state proclaimed on the 29th of June 1941, the Germans promptly removed Bandera and some of his key aides from Lviv. Initially, he ended up in prison, but was soon transferred to the Sachsenhausen concentration camp, and once he was released, he was forbidden to leave Berlin. The OUN's dreams of independence were swiftly dashed, and when the Nazis rolled into Lviv, the extermination of the Jews commenced. In the Nazi account of the war in Ukraine, the murder of Jews was described as the eradication of Bolsheviks, communism being seen as some kind of Jewish plot. The executions took place in the local Yanovska concentration camp, in the Belzech extermination camp in eastern Poland, or following isolation and starvation in local ghettos. Liquidations were also often effected by gathering up people and shooting them on the spot. Most notorious is the mass killing in northern Kiev, where, for two days in September, over the Jewish festival of Yom Kippur, a Sonder commando, aided by the Ukrainian police, executed more than 30,000 Jews and dumped their bodies in a mass grave in Babi Yar. During the Second World War, the Nazi regime engaged some 13,000 Ukrainians for mopping up actions at home and as camp guards in Poland, some having been pressed into slavery. But there were also very willing collaborators amongst the Ukrainians, and the extent to which Ukrainians are to be seen as victims or perpetrators during the occupation is a controversial and infected issue. After the Battle of Kursk in the summer of 1943, the Soviets began to reclaim Ukraine. And by the time Lviv was taken in July 1944, many of the country's Jews had lost their lives. The entry of the Soviets would be hard to describe as a liberation. Between 1944 and 1946, 180,000 Ukrainians were deported to Siberia and other central Soviet regions over accusations of collaboration with the Nazis. And of the Jewish lives extinguished during the Holocaust, one in six, a million people, were Ukrainian. The scale of Ukrainian fatalities during the Second World War is hard to take in. Seven million Ukrainian deaths. The number is too staggering. The butchery, too ruthless. The fascist Stepan Bandera, who remained in Germany and died in Munich in 1959, must be seen as a deplorable choice of national hero. The OUN had precociously proclaimed open war against Ukraine's Jewish population, which it saw as the support troops of the Bolshevik regime. In 1941, the nationalists purged 7,000 Jews in Lviv. But the point of the organization's blade was also pointed at the Poles. And between 1943 and 1945, Bandera's arm of the OUN had around 70 to 100,000 Poles executed in Volhynia and eastern Galicia. One might ask why this peculiar anti-Semitism has been such a stubborn presence in the country at different points in its history. The 1880s, 1918 to 1919, and 1941 are some of the years in more modern times when waves of killings have swept over the ethnic community. Jews have lived in Ukraine ever since Greek colonists settled along the coast of the Black Sea. 
From the latter half of the 1500s and into the following century, growing numbers migrated from Poland, employed by Polish landowners to develop urban economies with their time-honoured entrepreneurship. In western Ukraine above all, they worked as brokers, tradesmen, collectors of tax and tributes to the Polish crown, or as directors of restaurants and mills. For many peasants, they therefore came to symbolise the urban cash economy, with its duties, profits, interests and general state power. They served as businessmen and managers. A middle stratum beneath the elite and at times of social discontent represented an easy target. When a particular social class overlaps significantly with a particular ethnicity, the risk increases that revolts against the former are equated with attacks on the latter. Inflamed by their hatred of state henchmen, people lash out against the group they take to be their agents. In recent years, Ukraine's relationship with its Jews has provided a convenient instrument of all manner of propaganda. For those embracing socialist rhetoric or holding Russian sympathies, Bandera is proof that Ukraine's struggle for independence is driven by thinly-veiled far-right and racist forces in a hibernating OUN and its armed wing, the UPA, both of which are intimately bound up with blistering anti-Semitism. For pro-West nationalists in general, anti-Semitism is a closed chapter in the nation's history. Stepan Bandera's eventual incarceration in a Nazi prison and concentration camp where he sat during the worst of the OUN pogroms proves that he is primarily to be seen as a champion of Ukrainian liberation fighting three superior armies of occupation. To more ardent nationalists, Bandera's nationalism is the guiding thread to liberation from Moscow. And, if the Jews stand in the way of this, it shows that they are still serving, as they were then, the cause of Bolshevik imperialism. In 2010, Bandera was officially designated a national hero by the departing president, Viktor Yushchenko, a decision that was invalidated by the Supreme Court a few months later on the grounds that Bandera had not been a Ukrainian citizen. In 2007, the huge Bandera monument was unveiled in Lviv, and today, his statue stands in over a dozen other Ukrainian cities. There are also streets and squares named after the OUN leader. As recently as 2019, the Ukrainian parliament for Kovna Rada voted to declare Bandera's birthday, the 1st of January, a national holiday. In the country's eastern parts, he is regarded with much greater scepticism. Well, what can you say? That in a country with a dearth of national heroes, you have to make do with what you've got, perhaps? Or that for the lonely, your enemy's enemy is your best friend? Author Mykola Rabchuk grew up in Lviv, and I ask him what he thinks about Bandera being placed on a pedestal. Is that not grist to the mill for those who seek to present the country's national ambitions as marinated in far-right extremism? I prefer not to focus on such matters during the war we currently find ourselves in, but to me, there are two Banderas. One, the leader of an underground terrorist group and proponent of the then-popular fascist ideology. The other, the Ukrainian patriot, who fought for the country's independence and liberation from colonial oppression. I condemn the former, but embrace the latter. 
But could the same thing then be said about Stalin in his fight with Nazi Germany? Stalin was a player who wielded ultimate political power on the world stage. Bandera represented the start of something that did not yet exist. The OUN set up no concentration camps and had zero chance of victory. It was a national sacrifice to a lost cause. Rabchuk argues that the country's national symbols must be examined in light of its relationship to the USSR. Take Shevchenko, our national writer. The Bolsheviks managed to turn him to their own ideological needs, redefining him as a kind of Soviet peasant hero, a supporter of the future revolution and Soviet camaraderie. Yet still he couldn't be honoured here without official permission and surveillance. People were expelled from university in Ukraine when they tried to place flowers by Shevchenko monuments to commemorate his birthday. The oppression was heavier here than in Moscow, where you were free to borrow Nietzsche and Freud in the libraries. Rabchuk informs me that in Ukraine, people did not even have access to Soviet books published in the 1920s as they were considered insufficiently orthodox. The system was on a constant witch-hunt in Ukraine, by which I mean the ghosts of bourgeois nationalism. You have to take this into account too, says Rabchuk, who repudiates the associations between Ukrainian nationalism and far-right extremism. There is no mass far-right movement in Ukraine. The extremists in Svoboda failed to get above the threshold in the last election. All Ukrainian parties try to stay mainstream, as only this can win them votes at a national level. Is there then a prominent streak of anti-Semitism in today's Ukraine? The nationalists, including paramilitary groups, are allowed to hold marches in Kiev. And then there is the Azov Battalion, a volunteer military group with its roots in Nazism and the violent ultras of football club Metalist Kharkiv. This paramilitary group, is allowed to operate as part of Ukraine's National Guard and has attractive volunteers from other countries, such as Swedish security consultant Mikhail Skilt. The battalion nurtures an ideological narrative that more than lives up to the allegations that are usually thrown at Ukraine's nationalists. When Britain's The Guardian visited the Azov Battalion in Mariupol during the mobilisation against Russia's invasion of Crimea a few years ago, one of its soldiers explained that he had nothing against Russian nationalists per se, only that Putin was not a true-blooded Russian, but a Jew. Alex Voronov, who grew up in Ukraine but today writes editorials for the local Swedish newspaper Jeskilstuna Kuriren, has long kept a watchful eye on the country. I ask him for his views on the Azov Battalion. Sure, there's no doubting that it originated in a white supremacy environment, but not everyone who joined Azov had that background. I'm thinking of Mykola Berezowy, local Horlivka politician for the centre-right Batkivshina, Fatherland Party and director of a trolleybus operator. He was killed in Ilovaisk. It would be bad if his memory was associated with Nazism. So, I still see the battalion as heroes anyway. They played a key role in liberating and then defending the city of Mariupol in 2014 and 2015. I think they should be credited for that. 
Naturally, I don't want to give everyone in the regiment carte blanche for everything they do alongside their war efforts. But without the Azov Battalion, the consequences for eastern Ukraine would have been much worse. In its 18-country ranking of anti-Semitic sentiments that the Anti-Defamation League published in November 2019, Ukraine came in third place behind Poland and South Africa, with 46% of the population holding anti-Semitic views. By comparison, the figure in Sweden is 4%, putting it at the top, well, bottom, of the class. On the other hand, according to the few Ukrainian Jews with whom I discuss the matter, anti-Semitism is not a problem. A colleague in Kharkiv said that anti-Semitism is alien to his home city, where many Jews sit on its governing bodies, such as Mayor Hennady Kernes, who died of COVID-19 symptoms in December 2020, and the oligarch politician Alexander Feldman. In Krivirich, Dima Ambrosov denied, as a Jew, ever having problems with anti-Semitism. In early 2020, the country's Jewish-descended President Zelensky also maintained that anti-Semitism was all in the past, a non-issue. The fact that leading artists, politicians and oligarchs have Jewish roots admittedly does suggest that the flames of anti-Semitism are not burning as fiercely as they once did in Ukraine. But one problem in evaluating the extent of anti-Semitism in modern Ukraine is that the mass killing of Jews has accompanied that of Poles or Ukrainians in general. Ethnic cleansing has been a byproduct of what, with increasing frequency, is held aloft as the country's proud legacy of defiance. It still appears difficult to make things add up, however. Attitudinal surveys indicate that Ukraine is riddled with anti-Semitism and the reality in Ukraine where Jews are an uncontroversial part of the country's elite. On reflection, though, maybe it is not at all strange. Ukraine, quite simply, has not changed since the 1500s. The rural population turns its suspicious eyes to the country's urban intellectuals and financial elites and its countless Jews while in the cities, ethnic diversity and a large proportion of prominent Jews is just as timelessly self-evident as it is uncomplicated. But its history is what it is, and the urban Jewish cultural legacy has slowly faded. Ever fewer people define themselves as Jews in modern Ukraine, and in the CIA's estimation, the proportion has declined from almost 1% of the population to the current 0.2. Most Jews have become assimilated into the majority. In the early 1900s, Jews made up a third of Lviv's population. Today, there are just a few thousand left. The Poles have also vanished from Ukraine's gateway to Europe. With splendor and charm, Lviv has blossomed as a Ukrainian and global city. But with the polishing of the city's bronze statues, the spirit of bygone times, with the dynamism generated by the interaction of its Jewish, Soviet and Polish legacies, has also been wiped away.